Uh, I did some praying, thinking about what did I wanted to uh, spend March looking at since it's my opportunity to, to bring for adult Sunday school class. And I thought I would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Let me pull this up here. We would visit a, a subject that, you know, is on the surface very basic, a tenant of Christianity. And we're, we're looking here at Hebrews chapter 6, because Hebrews 6, he's, he's coming in from chapter 5, talking about how, you know, they were, they were being lazy, basically. That they should have been teachers by, by the point that he's talking to them, and they weren't. They weren't, and so he goes into to chapter six, talking about the basics, the basics of the gospel. Picking in verse one, he says, "Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, of instruction about washing, and laying on the hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment." And so the first one that's mentioned here is repentance from dead works. Repentance, repentance is again, it's a, a key tendent of, of Christianity, very, very basic portion of it. The gospel starts with that very word, repent, right? When John the Baptist came and proclaimed the gospel, and Jesus followed, he also started with repentance. Now understand, this isn't. I'm not indicating that we need to go back. We need to, to learn any elemental things about Christ. I, I think we're, we're beyond that. Um, however, I think that it's important to know that it's something that we don't leave behind either. I, as I mentioned, it's the beginning of the gospel. Repentance is what brought us into this relationship through the, the avenue of, of turning our lives away from a life of sin, following the faith into Christ Jesus. But I also say that repentance also keeps us in this relationship because we need it. We need it, uh, sometimes on a daily daily basis. And I think a good example of that, uh, of, of it found in Scripture, is David. You know, David is highly spoken of even by God himself. But we know David wasn't a perfect man. But what David was perfect at was repentance was repentance. Every time he, he messed up, every time his sin was made known to him, he would repent. And so we will, over the next couple uh, weeks, we'll naturally touch on some of the things that David did and David wrote about just because of that great example, that great characteristic that he shows us. I believe that God not only causes us to move on to maturity, to grow, but the, the things that go along with it, the characteristics that go along with it, they grow also. They grow also. Repentance isn't just some simple simple concept of, of changing direction. It can grow also if we take the time to look at it and see how important it is in our life. I believe that God causes those things to, to grow. And I make this statement because Scripture bears out these things are planted into our heart. And they give forth life-giving qualities that ultimately transform us into that new creation. We can read in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For those 
For the one who sows to the flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so we're, we're planting, we're growing, it's causing change in us. And so I believe it's important to approach even some of the elemental things with a modicum of maturity. That we've moved on from the, the basics of it, but we can come in with a renewed view of it when we begin to spiritually appraise things on a different level. Let's read these verses again. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, our repentance from dead works should increase in nature as we begin to understand that, well, this is sin in my life, and I, I need to turn away from it. Our faith toward God should grow stronger day by day. Our understanding about washings or baptism, it needs to be firm. We're Baptist after all, right? If we can't explain to someone what baptism is and what it represents and so forth and so on, then you know, we need to continue to, to grow in our understanding that it be rock solid. Our laying on of hands should multiply. It should become a more effective and, and more regularly instituted part of our ministry. Laying our hands on one another, showing that we care for one another and that it is effectual in our lives. And, of course, eternal judgment. You know, eternal judgment, the fear of it, as John tells us, should dwindle over time, right? And what matures, that reduces fear. Well, John tells us, First John, perfect love, mature love. We've come to know and have believed in God, which God has for us, and God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected, or the word is matured, with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but mature love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not mature. So again, while these things are elemental in nature, they should grow with us. They should, our understanding should grow in them. And so I want to look at repentance, because again, it's... it's it, in reality, it should be part of our everyday lives, no matter where our walk in the Lord is. And I want to start at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Here in Genesis 2, we're familiar with the account of, of God's creation and creating man. He set forth man in the garden, and he created all these wonderful things. And then we know in the midst of the garden, in verse 9 of Genesis 2, it says, Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And jump down to verse 16. It says, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And we know from here God fashions in a woman from the rib of the man, and we can infer that she too was given the commandment, Don't eat from this tree. Don't eat from this tree. In verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field 
which the Lord God had made, and said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so we know from here what happens. And this is what's often referred to as uh, the fall. The fall when sin is introduced. The fall of mankind. Uh, Interesting enough, the name Adam, or the Greek word Adam, means mankind. It means mankind in Hebrew. The first created being, the image of God, in his very name, is a representation of all mankind. And this is carried out throughout Scripture, and especially with Paul in his writings, when he talks about Adam's sin having consequences that go across all of mankind. Keep your finger in Genesis. We're going to come right back. But turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. And that's why I wanted to, to start there at the beginning, is because you know there's, there's some things that... We just we have to, to be sure in our mind concerning who we are, what we're dealing with. Romans five and verse twelve. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so sin spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, but much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound the more. And the gift is not like that one which came through the one who, is, who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigns through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through one, Jesus Christ. And he continues on, through one transgression that resulted in condemnation to all men. Now, it's, it's hard, to, hard to read this without not touching on what we're going to get to, which is obviously the opposite of, of what happened with Adam. But going back to, and we'll get to that point, but going back to Genesis, going back to the book of Genesis here, you know, throughout the story of God's interaction with his creation, we find repeated reference of this event. They go back to this time frame because... It changed. Creation itself changed. We're, we're told later on that creation itself longs to be released from the bondage that came about with sin. Not just not just us as, as humankind, but even creation itself. You know, Pastor Jeremy mentioned a few weeks ago that one of the first recorded instances of stewardship is here in this uh, creation account in the book of Genesis, that when God created man and woman, that he appointed them stewards over father's, our father's creation. And so we should understand that, that they were not merely stewards, but they were actually placed in dominion over God's creation. Back in chapter 1 and verse 26, 
says, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish and the sea of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all or all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let him rule. He gave him some dominion over these things. Not only that, but he tasked him with cultivating his creation. In verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing. That moves on the earth, and then, you know that's just being fruitful and multiply. It goes beyond just the initial thought of what we think of about being fruitful and multiply. They were to cultivate. They were to to create, just as their father created them. They were giving this this work to do, and we use the word work, and we automatically think about the work after the fall, right? It's grievous. It's hard. It's difficult. No, the work that they were doing, that God created them to do, was was marvelous. It was amazing that He did that. And so God set forth for them boundaries, not only what they should do, but also the very nature of what is good and evil. What is good and evil? But he created them with free will because he wanted his creation to love him based on their own free will. And so he asked them to trust him and he put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in their midst. They could choose to follow God, to trust him, to say, Lord, you know what is best for me, and I'm going to follow what you say is good and and stay away from what is evil, or you can seize for yourself that autonomy and start defining it for yourself, to understand, try and understand it for yourself, and so we know that's what they did. And from that point forward, we have a dense history of God's people trying to, to navigate their lives. There's pain, there's suffering, from the beginning, mistrust, burdened by these things, and eventually death. Death. And we're still doing that today. We're still trying to navigate this life. We're still trying to to determine one way or another how are we going to define good and evil. After much of their history, Isaiah would later proclaim, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. It's in Isaiah 5, 20-21. And then Solomon himself, he put it plainly twice in the Proverbs. It must have been important because he put it in two different Proverbs, the same exact phrase, Proverbs 14 and Proverbs 16. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And the reason I, I want to recap these things and talk about these things uh, because this, this story is the very reason that leads to Jesus Christ. The very reason we have a Savior. You know, I, we, we, we saw it, touching on it when we were in Romans. It, it took God sending His own Son in the likeness of man, coming down on high to accomplish what we never could. Well, we, could, we, we can't do ourselves. Man in the flesh, he would, he tried to, to, we tried to do what is right, but we can't, and so we sent Christ in the flesh to do it. He stayed within the parameters of God, didn't he? His, God's definition, within the will of God. He looked to God and said, this is what is good and this is what is evil. Never choosing to seize 
autonomy himself, he always deferred to his Father. And so through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, we too can then be reconciled once again to the Father and live. And while Jesus brought some great changes, some wonderful changes, you turn to the book of Hebrews and so often it says we have a better covenant, we have a better author, or a better altar, better temple. All of these things are so much better because of the changes that Jesus brought about. There's still a few inescapable facts that we have to deal with. And that's, let's go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. There are certain things that still, on a day-to-day basis, we have to deal with. Romans 3 and verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul deals with the concept of sin quite a bit in this letter to the Church of Rome. Over 50 times he, he talks about and addresses sin. And so we, we have to face the fact that there's sin in our life. There's sin in our life. You know, our, our pastor was talking to us this morning that, that Satan, he likes to come in and he likes to deceive us. He likes to say, you're okay. How often do we see the word sin mentioned outside of these walls and outside of our, our relationships with our brethren? From the day to day, would you feel comfortable going to your workplace and throwing around the word sin? Well, no, because people people don't like you talking about sin because immediately they begin to think about themselves. But the fact is, is there's there's no tolerance for sin. There's no safe space from sin. There's no identifying ourselves as infallible beings. Sin is there, and we have to address it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So with this knowledge, then, we have two choices, Right? We have two choices. Do we walk around saying, well, I'm just a sinner. I can't help myself. It's in my nature. No matter how hard I try, I'm going to sin. There's, there is some truth in that, but the problem is, is what does that develop? Are we going to go around and say that and say, woe is me? Or are we going to repent? Are we going to repent? I came across this this uh, interesting uh, anecdotal picture or story about the ideas. Is there's a town in Canada, remote Canada, called Wabash. It was completely isolated for a long, long time. But recently, there was a road that was cut in to allow access. Road cut through the wilderness. The same thing happens up in Alaska too. A lot of places in Alaska, the only place in is by a plane. Or boat. But if the same thing goes as something coming in, that's the only way out. 
right? There's only one road in, there's only one road out. If you think about it, this example says, we live, we're born into a town called Sin. The scripture bears it out. We're, we're born in, in, into sin. We read from the beginning all the way up into what Paul says in Romans 5. We can't escape it. However, God built a road. He built a road. There's one way out, and that's Jesus Christ. But first, we have to find it, and we have to turn around. We can't just stay where we're at. You know, there's multiple problems with the idea of this woe is me attitude of that I'm just a sinner, I'm stuck in this town, right? How many how many times have we met people that they, they grow up, they're, they're born, they grow up, and they die in the same town? I was talking to my, my uh, father the other day. He drills water wells out in Montana. And he's drilling this, this well kind of out in the, the boonies, if you will. If you can imagine Montana not being all boonies, but yeah. He's out there, and this, this farmer who lived next door comes up, and he starts asking him questions. This farmer's 84 years old. And uh, my dad asked him, you've been living there long? He's, yep, my whole life. My whole life. My dad kind of chuckled. He said, you were probably born there, too. He says, nope, I was born right across the street in that house right there. Right? That's, that's how it is for some people. They, they, they're born, they grow up, and, and they, they die in the same place. Now, that's not saying anything bad. There's something about you know, having, having uh, certainty about things. But when it comes to us, we can't stay in that town of sin. We can't die there. God does not want us to die there. And so he's brought about this, this option. And So let me get back to this idea of, of this woe is me attitude. There's some problems with that. And the first one is justification. We justify sin when we think, I'm just a sinner. I can't help it, right? There's a difference between recognizing something and justifying it. I can recognize that there's evil in this world that is called incest and rape. I can recognize that. I can recognize that there's many psychological damages that come along with that. But I will never justify the greater evil of murder of that innocent child that sometimes is a result of it. There's no justification for it. The scripture clearly, clearly tells us, do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just because an evil thing happens does not justify an even greater evil of murdering the innocent. Now, I use this, this extreme, extreme not just to make a clear stance on, on the issue, but to also to illustrate that justification of sin is, is a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. Every time we sin and we justify it, our heart becomes a little bit harder. A little bit harder. Since we're here in Romans, let's let's turn to the very beginning of Romans, in the end of the first chapter. I didn't write this down, but I was reminded of it. There's there's so many different things uh, written here. Verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness 
because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Uh, Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and crawling things. God, you know, God then it says gave him over to a degrading mind. Folks, he's not talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about his own people. He's talking, I believe, about the Jews. He said they knew God. Even though they knew God, they stopped giving him the glory. They, their, their hearts were darkened, as it says. They became, they began to justify so many things because of the hardness of our heart. It can be a slippery slope. Blessed is he who does not condemn himself by the things that he approves. We're told that in Romans 14, 22. Cannot justify ourselves into condemnation. Jesus would tell the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Again, getting back to this, this from the very beginning, of seizing that idea of what is good and evil, we can say it's good all day long, but it can be detestable in the sight of God. God is the one who justifies. Romans 8.33 says, So we look at his definition of what is good and evil. We look to him to say, this is right, this is wrong. And if we're not lined up with that, that's where repentance comes in. Right? We turn from where we're walking. Another point that happens when we take on this attitude of, well, I'm a sinner and I can't help myself, is a lack of faith. Think about it. We lack faith. For this, I really cannot say more than what Paul already says in Romans 6. Turn with me to Romans 6. He says it very, very plainly. And I think they must have had the same attitude because grace grace is, is so important, another very important part. But they were taking grace and they were running with it. And so he says in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? You know, oh, well. How many times have we heard his grace? His I'm under grace. You, know, you, say, you, you challenge someone in, on, on maybe what they're thinking or what they're doing, and they, they first they reject what you say, and then they fall back on grace. But Paul says right here, we cannot continue in sin, hoping that grace might increase. He says, may it never be. I'm not eliminating grace, by the way. I'm just saying we. I'm talking about ourselves and our mindset. May it never be, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin we have been freed from sin 
from sin, not of sin. We've been freed from sin. There's there's two distinct things there. We're going as we're going to continue to read here. We now have a choice. We have a choice. We have been set free in Christ to, to now no longer be slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. We have, we, we've been given a choice. Apart from Christ, what choice do we have? We're going to follow along what the world defines as good and evil because that's all we have. That's all we have. And as we read in the Proverbs, it's just going to lead us to death. But now, being freed from that bondage, we have a choice. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and as members, and your members as mem- instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He's telling us, Stop sinning. He actually says that pretty plainly, I think, in, in his letters, Corinthians. Stop sinning. Well, I, I, I'm just, I, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm stuck in this flesh. I know Adam, Adam sinned and it transferred to all mankind. I, I just, I can't help myself. He says right here that through Christ Jesus, we can. We can. Through his faith, through his victory, we just, we need to stop. Stop sinning. Praise the Lord that we have that opportunity. We have to have faith. Coming back to the idea of faith. Faith. You know, Satan, Satan uses our sin to attack our faith. He uses the concept that, that we're stuck in these temporal bodies that, that have its lusts and that we can't do anything about it. And so what does that mean? Christ is not able to. That's what we're saying. Christ is not able. I know I'm not able. I'm not able to stop sinning. But I know Christ is able. In him, we have great things. The very foundation of our salvation is based on the fact that Jesus Christ has taken care of our sins. He's taking care of our sins. If, if we don't believe that he can transform our life, releasing us from that bondage, providing us with an opportunity to say, God, I know that I'm not able to distinguish between good and evil by myself. I know that you are the true authority providing uh, or in such things, providing me with the answers that I need to, to choose rather than my own. I need to do that. And that results in justification, which results in righteousness, which results in sanctification, which ultimately has a great result, which we're going to read here about in a moment. You know, understand, I'm not talking about salvation by works. 
As soon as you start getting in and talking about obedience and, and, and what we need to do and the choices we need to make and all these things, people get worried that you're talking about salvation by works. No, because I can't do anything of myself. Nothing of myself. The, the Being delivered from the, the deeds of the flesh, those things are, are not of my own. I'm talking about works that are found in salvation because of what Christ has done for me. I now have the power through his spirit and through his guidance of, of his word and, and prayer to do these things. Being delivered from the deeds of the flesh that would normally result in condemnation and being now able to freely sow in the spirit, as we, as we read earlier. God is not mocked. We sow in the spirit, we'll reap eternal things. Let's, let's uh, continuing on here. Uh, let's finish off chapter 6 because... He continues on. Verse 14 again. Sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. That's that's where it comes in that dispels the idea of salvation by works. Because it's through grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. As I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you were presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now... Present yourselves as members of slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin, enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free God, gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It, it's amazing how Paul takes us through this, right? First, he tells us he tells us we can't continue on in sin even though we have grace. Grace is this great and magnificent thing that God gives us, but we cannot use that as an excuse to to sin. And so then he he goes on and tells us that we've been freed from it. Now we need to turn to God and we need to obey. And so we see here a very clear line, a process of thought. Verse 16, obey. Verse 19, righteousness. Verse 22, sanctification. I think I got ahead of myself. I think 22 is eternal life. But there's there's a distinct pattern there that he shows us. What's that? Yes. Yeah. And so it's you know there's he shows us what we need to do now that we're freed from sin. And again, it all comes back to just Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has, has, has allowed us to do this. And so that comes to, to my last last point in this idea of, of being trapped in this mentality of I'm just a sinner. And that is as we do such a dis, dishonor to Christ. In reality, we're, we're as I've mentioned before, we're in a way denying Him. If if our faith in Christ wavers, where we say He's not able, then we're denying the very thing that He came to do. 
right? He, he came to, to die and to suffer. Salvation in Christ is the belief that he was able to address our sins. And yet, if we continue in them, then we're saying, well, that salvation, I guess, falls a little short in my case because I'm just going to keep on sinning. Well, that's not what, what repentance is about. Let's go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. I came across an encyclopedia of 7,700 illustrations. And one of them was this idea of what the Romans used to do as a form of punishment. Uh, the Romans sometimes would compel a captive to be uh, joined face-to-face with a dead body. They are shackled together. And they had to, to carry about this dead body and deal with all of the effects of this rotting corpse next to him to where it eventually it would kill them because of, of everything that they dealt with. They, and it was, it was a cruel punishment. Virgil, who's, who's a poet, he wrote of this poem. He says, The living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face, hand to hand, till choked with stench and loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. Just a terrible, terrible way to die, in my uh, uh, opinion. And without Christ, we're shackled to a dead corpse. Our sinfulness, only repentance frees us from that certain death, from a, a life that, that life and death cannot coexist together. Eventually, we're just going to die if we keep carrying around that old man. Christ has unshackled us from that. Here in Hebrews 10, verse 23, and so we cannot deny, deny him. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has regarded as unclean or common the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We, we can't deny Christ. We can't deny the, the power of his blood can't deny the holy nature of his blood by walking around with this defeatist mindset that, well, I'm just stuck in my sins. Yes, we have sin in our life, but it doesn't have to rule over us. It doesn't have to. You know, my point in bringing these things up is, is not to beat ourselves up. Don't, don't, you know, don't get this impression that you know, we, we're, we, we can't beat ourselves up. Rather, it's, it's to try and highlight or excuse me, rather it's to be inspired. 
try and be inspired to know that we've been handed a victory in Christ. Uh, we heard it this morning in, in the message this morning, the things that we're given. I want to, let's close in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. One of my favorite verses in it is in here. 1 Corinthians 15. Hopefully we can be inspired. Inspired to, to know that He is able. Christ has done so many great things for Him. He has brought the victory to us. Here in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal shall have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The victory has already taken place. We, that's, that's what's so wonderful about this, is the victory has already happened. Christ did it for us. We're not, we're not trying to, to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to, to scale the, the mountain, which is death, ourselves. Christ already did that for us. Christ has fought the battle and won. All we have to do is place ourselves, our lives, in his hand, and we can have victory too. Nobody wants to be a loser, right? You mentioned being a loser this morning. We don't want to be losers. We as a congregation, you know, we're, we're blessed to have a, a pastor who's pushing us to be purposeful people, pushing us to, to be out serving our community, to be proclaiming the Gospels to everyone that we come to in our life, to be stewards of what God has given us. We need to be just as purposeful in our fight against sin. Because if we're not, if we don't wake up in the morning with on our mind that, Lord, I am going out into this world, I'm going to put on the, the armor that, that God has given us, and I am going to fight against sin. I'm going to be purposeful in that, in my repentance and, and putting off those things. We need to have that. We should find inspiration. My repentance will not allow me to justify the evil that is around me. I will stand strong against the evil, not matching evil for evil, but overcoming evil with good. My repentance affirms my faith. It makes it stronger because I know that my faith can move mountains. The faith of Christ can move mountains, just like those who... you know came before me, right? That cloud of witnesses. What did their faith do for them? If we live a life of, of repentance and our faith is growing, those great men and women that we read in the Scripture, 
But when the books are opened, we have the chance of having the same things spoken about us. And our repentance reminds me to be in awe of what Christ has done for me. That I can walk around with gratitude in my heart for the suffering that he endured, for the death that he endured, for the blood that he shed that should have been mine. Repentance grants us that victory by, by remembering that, honoring that in our daily walk. You know, I, I, I hope we've seen enough today of the why. Why we need repentance. Why we need to, to understand that there's change that needs to be happening in our place, our, our lives day to day. I want to spend the next, next couple of weeks looking at the how. What has God given us? What tools do we have? What, what do we have to, to actually do these things? You know, teachers are said to, to be placed to equip the saints, right? To build up the body of Christ. If I tell you the why, if I get up here and just tell you, this is why you need to do this, this is why you need to do this, this is why you need to do this, and I never gave you the how, well, then I've failed you. I've failed you as this teacher. And so I want to take, take some time to take the idea of, of purposeful repentance and make it practical in our lives. And so that's, that's what I've, I want to spend a couple weeks doing I, I, uh, for myself and hopefully as a, as a benefit for all of us. Let us be purposeful in our striving against sin and let us be victorious in Christ Jesus. Thank you.